The, the scripture today comes from the 45th chapter of Genesis. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. So, dramay, so dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen, and you shall, bear, you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. And I will provide for you there, since there are five more years of famine and, and to come, so that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them, and after that his brothers talked with him. May God bless this reading. Well, it feels like almost every week I stand up here and I tell you something about myself. Uh, it's one of those things that happens your first few weeks at a new church. But this week I did some snooping and found out something about you. Okay, it's not really about you, don't be too concerned. But it is something about, that's something people who live here in Lafayette might be familiar with. I read this story about a guy named Paul O'Neill, and in particular his time as the CEO of the company Alcoa. Hence, the, that's why it's about you. Don't worry too much. Of course, uh, Alcoa, I don't understand this. I'm sure you all don't understand this. The plant here used to be Alcoa. It's now Arconic, but Arconic is still part of Alcoa. But I, don't, I, I have a theology degree, not a business degree. But the story that I read goes like this. In 1987, uh, O'Neill was hired as the CEO of the company after a number of years in public service. But he, when he got hired, he gave an opening speech to all the people in the company, the supervisors, and he caught everybody off guard. You see, usually this op opening speech is pretty scripted. There's talk about margins and profits and... Oh, et cetera, et cetera. Those were probably the only two business words I could think of, by the way. <laughs> but when O'Neill stood up to give the speech, he didn't talk about any of that stuff. Instead, he launched into his plan to increase safety and how together they were going to make Alcoa the safest company in the world. They would crack down on injuries, repair old equipment, and all this stuff that has nothing to do with profits. And there was a part of the story held that some people left the meeting, called their stockbroker, and said, please sell my shares now. Because they were so concerned this wasn't going to work. But over the next 10 years, the opposite happened. Alcoa transformed into one of the most profitable companies in the world. You see, it turned out that focusing on safety meant improving the function of the company in general. 
So there are all these sort of anecdotes. If a worker noticed that a machine was unsafe, they were encouraged to tell their supervisor and the machine would be replaced. And what that meant wasn't just that it was more safe, but it meant that it was more efficient. In order to track safety complaints, the company created a computer-based network for reports. This is in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, before the internet was a thing. And so, years later, when other companies started trying to shift to the internet, Alcoa was already ahead of them because they had this internal network already created. And finally, because workers had to be encouraged to share their experiences of, of safety with their superiors, this whole culture was created within the company of openness. If you had an idea for how to make things better, they listened to you. And so it led to more innovation. So I read about this in a book that's called The Power of Habit. It came out a couple years ago, and the basic premise of the book is this. Habits rely on a subconscious know-how. Habits are things that we don't even know are going on, but they ripple out and have unintended effects and consequences. They can change stuff that isn't at all related to the, the primary needs. And so in the case of Alcoa, Paul O'Neill took the reins of a struggling company, and rather than try to fix the stuff most closely associated with the problems, you know, profitability and margins and all that, he instead focused it on creating new habits within the company. Habits around safety, something that didn't seem at all to be concerned. The book has a bunch of other stories about this, these kinds of, of actions. There was, the book begins with a woman who for years has She's overweight, she smokes a lot, she drinks a lot, and she keeps trying to kick all these habits and, it, and nothing works. And finally, she decides to adopt a jogging habit. She's gonna wake up at 6 a.m. every morning and jog, and she jogs, and she keeps this habit going. But of course, because of this habit, she quits smoking, and she quits overeating, and she quits drinking because you can't do all of those things and be a good jogger. There are all of these things that these habits change that we don't even realize we're focusing on. And there are all of these stories in the book. The first example I was going to use before I heard Alcoa, by the way, was Tony Dungy. But. And when I was preparing for our scripture today, one of the things that stuck, stuck out to me about this story and these stories and this idea of the power of habit is that what is true about all of these stories is that the decision to change habits, the decision to adopt new habits or abandon old ones, they always come in the midst of a company or a person or a team that doesn't have it all figured out. And people don't wait to have it all figured out to adapt, adopt new habits. Rather, it's often in the times when things are the most messed up that turning towards changing simple habits becomes effective. It's in the times when these, if Paul O'Neill said, we'll focus on safety after we become profitable, this, sto this story would not be in this book. And so I thought about this a lot this week because of our scripture. See, this scripture in Genesis, is, it's a lovely, it's a heartwarming story. What we see today is the story of redemption and reconciliation. The, 
brothers of Joseph have traveled a long way. If you go back a couple chapters, these are the brothers that sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt, that literally pushed him out the door. These brothers have shown up in Egypt, and they're standing before this Egyptian gatekeeper who controls their access to food, who's going to take care of them during this famine, and they're desperate, and they're bowing before him saying, please help us, and they don't recognize who it is. And suddenly the official reveals himself, and it is Joseph, their long-lost brother, the one whom they betrayed. And he offers them grace and says, I'm going to give you this land and you will live here and be close to me and you will be here and your children and their children's children shall grow up on this land near their family. I will take you in and care for you. This story could have gone a totally different way. The brothers do not have a good track record. Again, they sold their brother to foreigners. They are in the midst of a drought. They do not have enough food to survive. They're not sure what their future holds. And at this point, they go to Egypt in search of food. And just in case you thought that that wasn't enough mess, the real mess in the history of Israel comes after this. Because it's not long after this that there's a famine and that Joseph, in an attempt to provide, literally sells his family to Pharaoh and creates the slavery in Egypt. This slavery in Egypt, which is so important to the people of Israel that it becomes the defining story when God comes and rescues them from their plight. So what we have then is that before this, before this heartwarming story, there is a mess. After this heartwarming story, there is a mess. There's famines, there are families betraying one another, there's slavery. And it is in the midst of this mess that God does God's work. For who would have thought that this story of reconciliation could happen God doesn't wait to figure things out. God doesn't wait for us to have everything in order. God doesn't wait for us to have our minds made up. But God works in the midst of our mess. God works in the midst of our struggle. On Thursday this last week, I drove into Indianapolis to meet with a spiritual director. And I've done this several times in the past. A spiritual director is it's a person who, who you meet with and whose, I don't want to say job, is occupation is to walk with you through your spiritual journey, to listen with you, to struggle with you, to be in prayer with you as you journey in your faith. And this is not the first time I've seen a spiritual director. Um, The first time I did this was actually when I was an associate pastor in Phoenix. And it was frankly at a time when my life felt kind of like a mess. Um, There wasn't anything too serious happening. It was just a series of events that happened to happen at the same time. Uh, I had 
in about a month, lost my senior pastor who, pursu who pursued a different call and left me with the uh, ma maintenance of the congregation. I had ended a long-term relationship with somebody, not Amanda. And I had performed my first funeral, something which, which when you do your first funeral and sit with a grieving family, it just it takes out of you energy that you didn't know you had to give. And so I went to the spiritual director and I remember telling him just how out of control my life felt and how I wasn't sure how I was going to get grounded and connected to God. I expressed this desire to have a more ordered spiritual practice that I felt like I couldn't really sit with God because of everything going on and how distracted I felt. And I wanted control. That's what I told him. I want to be in control of my spiritual life. Don't don't we all? And I can still remember sitting there in that room with him. And he looked at me and said, let's talk about why you don't think God is present unless you're in control. And after that conversation, I began to have this realization that, that I put God in a box. Let's call it a, an in-control box. In order to meet God or to experience grace or to think about redemption or reconciliation, everything has to be in order first. It all has to be figured out. Spirituality for me had become a cure for busyness, a cure for messiness. Of course, I've learned since then that there is absolutely no cure for those things that life comes at you in hectic ways all of the time, and that if you think you're going to get to a point where your house is completely in order, you might be delusional. It's just not gonna happen. But what I did come away with and what I'm still working on is the belief that God is still there. God is still in the presence of the mess. In those times when there's too much on my plate, in those times when I feel depressed, in those times when I'm anxious, in those times when I can't seem to get things right, God is there. When I regret something I've said, which never happens to me, and in those times when I have to make a difficult decision or have a difficult discussion with someone, God is there. And in those times when I've woken up late every day, and I can't find anything on my desk because it's so messy. And when I'm running late to every meeting on the calendar, God is there. God does not wait for our lives to be in order. God is present in the mess. And this is true throughout scripture. It is during the time of slavery in Egypt when God heard the cry of the people and in the exile in Babylon, and in the coming of Jesus Christ, the story of our God is the story of a God who comes to be with us in the muck of our lives. What, then, are we waiting for? What broken relationships do we have? What harmful patterns? What personal struggle are we waiting to resolve before we ask God for help? What relationships do we have that need mending? What decisions have we put off? What guidance have we not asked for? 
What mess in our lives have we decided we need to resolve first before God will act? Today, let's, let's stop all that. The thinking that God's grace is only present to you once you have it figured out, that redemption only comes once you've mended all of the fences. For the story of our faith is a story of a God who comes to be with us. And it is a God who comes to be with us not in times of tranquility and understanding, but in all times, in all places. And so I began by talking about the power of habit, stories of people and companies and teams that were transformed by adopting a simple practice that didn't necessarily seem related to the problem at hand. For us, those who believe in a God who is faithful to creation, what better habit can we adapt than to be aware of the grace that is already offered to us? Not after we figured it out, or after we've stopped sinning, but right now, right where we are. That is a habit that once you adopt it, the effects are going to ripple out in every place in your life. The effects of accepting God's grace, God's unconditional love, that will transform every other part of your life. So let us not think that we have to fix every other part of our life before we turn to God's grace and love. Let us now adapt the habit of remembering that God loves you in the midst of your mess. Amen. Well, we come to...